The fleshies are weak. They are strong enough when it counts. The one called Careless Whisperer, one of the elves, is a particular mystery to me. We were battling a trio of red feathers in the sewers of the old market, and one of them nearly stabbed him in the heart. Only his precious silver mirror stopped the blow from being fatal. This young master is just too pretty to die, he japed. I assure you that I am not, I replied. So stop toying with that fool and kill him. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Dungeons and Decisions, a Displaced Beast production, and part two of our exploration of our new sample campaign, The Gangs of Newgate. Today, we are going to talk about how to bring your characters, up until now, just a lifeless pile of numbers, to life. So, to get us started, I turn the introductions over to Chad. Hi, I'm Chad. Just, just Chad. Okay. <laughs> no alliteration today. I'm Mark Russell. Good to see all of you virtually. I'm Mike Matoni, and I'm feeling even more handsome than usual. And I am Al Barris, your eternal DM for today, and again, acting as unofficial MC for uh, the beginnings of this podcast. So now I turn the uh, proceedings over to Mark. So as Al said, this one is uh, really the second part of a series. So you, if you have not watched the first part, which is our previous episode, you may want to go back and check that out uh, because we are going to be talking about uh, a number of characters, uh, eight of them to be precise, that the four of us generated uh, in a uh, character generation uh, example. And uh, those eight characters are now going to be uh, further developed um, in various ways today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, ways that you can engage with your character to help kind of bring them more to life. Um, so uh, we're going to go through a number of different categories uh, that you can use to kind of express your, uh, your personal vision of your character. I, I think that one of the things that concerned us when we were making this episode is kind of this this common perception that uh, the way that you engage with role playing is this kind of like improvisational theater model, right? Where you kind of, you, you, wave, you wave your hands a lot, you, you're expressive, you really, you know, get into character. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, I, I don't want people to be intimidated by that kind of common perception and, and, and not want to engage with role playing because there's a lot of different ways to do it. It is a long path of Character Mountain, but there's lots of ways to get to the top. So today we're going to talk about those ways, and Al is going to be up first. So take it away, Al. This is good, but what is best in life? Well, clearly, the open step, mm. the guitars, falcons at your wrist, and wind in your hair. Wrong! Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of their women. Thank you, 
and scene. So for those of you at home, this is a begin the one of the key crucial scenes from Conan the Barbarian and much beloved by all of us. So this is to set up our discussion of how Wizards of the Coast has been nice enough to give us an entry point into exploring our characters. The traits, bond, ideal, and flaw. Now, what we have just enacted from Conan the Barbarian, the only true Conan product, uh, is, well, other than Robert E. Howard's work, of course, uh, is the idea of the ideal. Again, so what does your character value most in this grand world of ours? What do they truly want? And at this point in Conan's life, what he wants to do is wreck stuff. And that is perfectly okay. And that fits with what is going on in his character arc. So we start off with the idea of the set characteristics, which the player's handbook uh, explores in quite a bit of detail. And then we start fleshing those out. So one of the things that I identified for one of my characters, so Shark, who I voiced at the beginning of this episode, uh, Sharkashic, my lizard folk ranger, uh, his flaw, so the weak point, one of the weak points of his character is that he has a fondness for drink. So he is ordinarily, of course, all business, but occasionally he is going to be left unsupervised around a vat of booze, and he is going to be wasted and thus uh, impacted in his uh, interactions with the party. Now, the way that all of these work mechanically during, uh, through the game is through the mechanism of uh, inspiration. And I rather like the way that Wizards did this, because other games have a lot more elaborate ways of trying to get you to be in character. And just doing it nice and simply that way, there is a mechanical reward for you actually doing stuff that might hurt your character, or kind of screw over the other characters in some cases. There is a reward encouraging you to do that, but it's not enough that it's gonna break the game in any particular way. You can only have inspiration once at a time, and uh, it encourages you to spend it and then try again to get another point worth of it. So those traits, bonds, ideals, and flaws, we actually, uh, some of us got to filling those out on the character sheets. I don't think we all got through them, but uh, we do have some examples of those up in the character sheets that we've linked to on uh, the YouTube site. So uh, take a look at those if you want a little bit more detail on what we decided uh, for each of our characters. So that's the starting point that we wanted to get into. Again, Wizards has given us a nice little easy way for us to explore our characters. And rather than just seeing these as another uh, blank on your character sheet you don't fill in, uh, this is actually a pretty useful role-playing tool that you can use to try, try to flesh yourself out some more before you get started. All right, and I pass the microphone over to Jed. All right, so I guess the first question I would ask is, why did you get so awesome at your specialization? Why is your character so good at what they do? Uh, some of these thoughts, I think, if you have in the background of how did they grow up and become so powerful uh, are, are things that help further develop, you know, how are you going to play that character? Uh, so, for example, I have a Golden Child. He's a divine sorcerer class, and he specializes in being a support cast. Whether it's healing, buffs, or just a good attaboy, he's the man to help out. Uh, for role-playing purposes, Golden Child is raised by one of the church's excommunicated priests, 
who told him all his life that he was special, that he would make a difference and save the world. And that along with his Azamar good looks and his spark of innate magic being divinely blessed, this has led Golden to spend his entire life in the pursuit of the divine. Now that he is in, running in a gang, will it be his chance to convert even more believers into saving the world? Or will it mark the start of his fall from grace? For gameplay purposes, I wasn't trying to optimize my character with just two key stats and a singular ability, feat, or spell uh, to make him the best at what he does, like the one-punch mat. Uh, but instead, we're looking at kind of specializing in, in defining who he is. Uh, so in this case, I decided to actually look at his weak stat, like intelligence, which is like an eight or a nine, I can't remember, to define his personality character. Uh, his intelligence is now kind of going to get replaced with his charisma, uh, and hopefully this will uh, shore up any weaknesses with, like, hopefully humorous results. Uh, for gameplay purposes, the race of Asmar not, not only did it work out for kind of role-playing purposes, but it also gave him a charisma bump of plus two, which was a great boon to his class. Uh, the Protector subclass boost, the plus one to wisdom, uh, it didn't really do anything for the character, but I think it falls squarely into his need to protect those around him. Plus, at third level, he can uh, use an action to create divine energy within himself and have his eyes glimmer and two wings sprout from his back. Uh, Golden Child will probably be very insufferable to those around him when he levels up. Finally, for further specialization, all his spells were more cleric-based rather than mage. Mostly healing like clear wounds, uh, buffs like bless, protection for shield, or save the dime, which saves the dime. His only offensive spell is sacred flame, which he incorrectly believes only hurts evil people. Uh, so basically, people with high decks, which is the saving throw for sacred flame, is probably who he thinks is going to be good. Uh, Hakadekara. With both cleric and mage spells available, it'll also give me room to grow my character. Uh, more healing if he stays as naive and good self, or maybe more to the dark side with offensive uh, spells if he becomes cynical and bitter with the world around him. Kind of excited to see what happens. For my other character, Eek, it's a goblin. Eek came about as an urchin goblin child who lived below ground in the sewers. He didn't have much interaction with other people. Kind of lived in a self-contained habitat, hunting and being hunted by sewer creatures. And he got really good at it. So much so that the cycle of life and communion with nature, well, sewer nature, came to be his class calling. So while Eek may be out of his elements when above ground and dealing with people, in the sewer he is at his best. For gameplay purposes, I once again looked at my character's weak stat, which is intelligence, but this time using kind of wisdom as a substitute, which actually probably makes him a stronger character. As a goblin, he gets a plus two to dex and plus one to con, which are good stats for any class, but doesn't bump his wisdom to the almighty 17 for extra bonuses for the druid class. So with an average strength of 10, he probably won't rely on too many uh, handheld weapons for melee, but with his dex of 16, he'll have a better armor class and use range attacks like his sling. Uh, he's also got a primal spell, or primal savagery spell, from Xanthor's Guide to Everything. This lets him grow up claws and fangs and attack for 1d10 of damage. So not only does this fit in with my concept of an easygoing, but don't make him angry or watch out if he's hungry creature, but it's a pretty powerful attack. Um, so while not especially optimized, as we've been calling our min-maxing, still each character has been specialized in doing one thing well, whether it's protecting the innocent or catching a rat for a nice midnight snack. And Mark. Yeah, so uh, uh, on the, uh, the converse of that, uh, why is my character so bad at something? <laughs> so I, if you've seen any of our previous videos, 
uh, you've heard us uh, talk at great length about uh, how being bad at something can actually be role-playing gold. And Mike has made this point especially several times that it's okay to fail. And in fact, it can be really, really fun. You fail uh, forward. Fail forward, yes. Yeah, fail <laughs> forward. Uh, so... Okay, so your character is probably bad at something unless you maybe like fudged your roles or cheated or just got really lucky. You probably have, uh, you know, one attribute that's below average or, or maybe even, you know, um, a, a skill that maybe you're not very good at or you have disadvantage imposed on you from some condition or uh, maybe you're wearing armor and that keeps you from, from uh, that gives you disadvantage to, to stealth. There, there's lots of kind of uh, ways that your character can be bad at something. Um, and it can be really, really fun to describe exactly how these colossal failures happen. Uh, <laughs> you get a bad role uh, on climbing, for example, and you get to describe your fall all the way down. Um, you uh, screw up your acrobatics, and that can be, you know, physical comedy gold. Um, and, you know, every kind of utter failure, every, you know, mess up is, is, the, is a possibility for role-playing. Now, uh, my character, uh, Vic the Vulture, who is a, a hobgoblin uh, wizard, and uh, very much this, this kind of... Uh, scavenger survivalist uh he is he has low charisma um and he is uh, that's what the kids call the dump stat um and he he's going to be bad at all social interaction so it really kind of makes sense for me to kind of think of him in a way that that explains this um and what i kind of came up with is that he's just because he's you know kind of very selfish and individualistic um, and has this kind of very, very strong survival instinct. He's, he's always going to be like paranoid and suspicious of others. It's just like how he survives. So he's going to be, you know, kind of one of those guys who's immediately on the offensive. You know, he wants to know your motivation, wants to know why you're doing this because, you know, it might be dangerous for him. Uh, and, uh, he's also going to be, you know, very, very obviously self-serving, which is, you know, off-putting, I think, to just about everyone, and and very transactional about his interactions with other people, which, once again, is very off-putting. So it's just going to be this, have this this manner of interacting with other people that automatically makes him unlikable. And then when he really, really fails, right, he's already got a penalty to the role, and if I roll, uh, you know, one or two, I really get to be spectacular and, you know, trying to get someone to be something, and I call him a, a you know an idiot and a <laughs> stinking human or whatever and and just really really fail spectacularly uh, um, it's it's very very satisfying and really gives you those moments where you can you can say well okay I have this this really really you know really unlikable person it, on his worst day you know, on his biggest failure, like how bad would he do? And the possibilities are pretty endless. All right, Mike, you're up next. All right. So um, oftentimes um, the, the narrative of the campaign is driven by the interactions that you have with, um, with people outside the party, uh, non-player characters. 
um, as well as the relationships and interactions that you have um, with player characters themselves within your party. So the question becomes, um, how does your character interact with those outside your party, as well as how do they interact with people inside your party? So one of the characters that I made up was Careless Whisper. Uh, he's an elven thief. Um, he is a fallen noble or displaced noble. Um, so immediately, as I conceived of his interactions with, with everyone, you know, he grew up in a, um, <clears throat> you know, in a high society. Um, everything is done cloak and dagger, arm's length. There are no permanent friends, no permanent enemies. Um, so I envision all of his interactions are very transactional. Um, I, will, I will be kind to those who can do, uh, can, can benefit me, and I have no time or, um, you know, will, will treat those who can't do anything for me rather poorly. Um, and that's going to raise a lot of interesting role-playing opportunities, again, inside and outside the party, in terms of who you suck up to, who you offend, um, what's your bottom line. Um, all those decisions can be, can be driven by that transactional nature. Um, I can also envision um, there can be particular turning points where, where that dynamic improves or, um, or degenerates um, depending on uh, what happens. So, um, so he could you know, perhaps learn to be better to others um, or not everyone is, uh, is, <clears throat> is to be uh, evaluated purely on what can you do for me. Um, alternatively, if, if things go sideways for him in a bad way, if I roll bad, um, it, can, it can be aggravated. So, um, so I can see a lot of evolution in a variety of different ways um, uh, on that score. So uh, with that, um, I think it's back to Al. All right. So I have the question, what do you do to create a distinctive voice? For your character. Now we are uh, intending this to be literal at this point in that what are you doing to express yourself verbally as your character? I always like to have a character voice that's different in some way from my regular voice so I can differentiate between what I am describing is going on and then actual lines that I'm going to be saying. Especially considering that uh, my I do tend to prefer characters who do engage in um, some verbal wordplay. I do want them to, to make it clear, yes, DM, I am actually saying this. So in uh, the opening, I did the voice of Sharkastic, my uh, lizard folk. And in that case, I just decided to pitch my voice just a little bit higher. And then I ended up uh, dragging out the S's, just a little bit more menacing than usual. And then as far as my uh, duogar, uh, Gunter, Gunter Cavernborn, I'm doing an angry Irish dwarf for Mark's campaign right now. And I didn't want to fall into that again. So I just, and Gunter's not very bright. Annie's mean. So I decided that a nice, thick, northern British bully accent would do this. So he's going to be addressing people this. And it's going to be very close to, uh, for those of you familiar with War, uh, for, with Warhammer or Warhammer 40k, I'm kind of doing an orc voice for that one. Uh, so I want to try and make him menacing. 
and yet slow-witted at the same time. So frequently, whenever he's going to blow one of his intelligence rules, there's going to be some comeback like, you think you're so smart, and that's going to be the, uh, the takeoff point for a threat of some variety. We'll see how smart you are when you're picking your teeth out of that wall behind you. And then violence occurs. So that said, uh, for people who don't like accents, and I can, I've only got so much range. I'm not a voice actor. None of us is our voice actors. We are not critical role. Uh, you'd all be happier, audience, if we were, but we're not. Uh, so we have to get by on being uh, 30 year veterans of D&D, power cells on the back. Um, instead, instead of flashes in the pan. But anyway, uh, you do not need to <laughs> pick up that podcast fight. Are you right trying now. to start a flame war? <laughs> Why not? Let's get those let's get those views up, people. Not with Matt Mercer, Al. <laughs> in any event, let's not take all right, fine, I take that all back. Not really. Start the flame war. Anyway, so the uh, if you don't like voices, if you don't like accents or any of that tomfoolery, I advise just maybe change the words you use just a little bit. Try to simplify, if you're not doing a very bright character and you're ordinarily a pre pretty eloquent person, uh, you want to simplify what you're saying a little bit or speak a little bit more slowly when you're trying to do that. If you are a more easily excitable character, uh, you're the little guy who wants to start the fight all the time, something like that. Maybe speak a lot faster, and that way you're signaling to the DM that you've changed. And again, uh, I, I teach speech as uh, my main, uh, well, speech and composition primarily. But as a speech teacher, when I'm teaching uh, the oral interpretation speech that I have people do, um, I try to discourage accent use unless people are really confident and really want to do it but just that little change to your voice uh when you're doing another character so if you're doing a cop for example in a speech and you got pulled over uh in that case you would uh, make your voice a little bit more authoritative uh, just a little bit of a shift is frequently enough to indicate that you are in character at that point and that way again we're very clear on what your character is saying and then what you are describing as the player or any wisecracks you're making as a player are in your regular voice. Yeah, I think that it can, I think it, it can take some courage if you're not, if you don't have that acting background, it can take some courage to, to do the voice. And it's really speaking uh, uh, on behalf, I think, of all Dungeon Masters, it's really okay if you don't. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. not something that you, you feel comfortable with. But um, as Al said, you could just make subtle changes and that gives some very, very crucial signals to the to the DM, um, which I, you know, the more that everyone kind of stays in character, the longer that kind of that great moment lingers, right? Of, of everyone being in the story, present in the story together, and the voice is one of those things that helps you do that. If I, if you want to, one great way to do this is to pick out a character in fiction that you think your character is going to sound like. And you can, you know, listen to that, you know, loops of video loops of that character over and over. It gets maybe some catchphrases down. You can even like look up YouTube videos and watch people instruct you on how to do impersonations of that character. 
uh, which is awesome. Go YouTube. Um, uh, I did that. I had to, to in the game, I, I wanted, I really wanted to have Mickey Mouse appear. <laughs> <laughs> My kids, right? So I, oh boy. You know, I had to like work on my Mickey Mouse, right? <laughs> Come on, Pluto! <laughs> and uh, I, I just looked up a YouTube video of a of a guy doing Mickey Mouse, and we did Mickey Mouse for about fifteen minutes. I was like, okay, that's good enough. <laughs> yeah, it's for the kids. Yeah, it's for the kids. Uh, so um, along along those lines, uh, for one of Mark's games, I ended up playing. Uh, this is one of the ones we played over uh, New Year's a ways back. Uh, I ended up playing an archivist, and I decided that I was going to do Sean Connery as the oh, yeah. voice. And I ended up stealing the vocalization from it from uh, Sick Boy, uh, his his version <laughs> of uh, right of, uh, of Connery from Train Spotting. Yeah. And so I delivered it exactly like it's delivered in the book. <laughs> it's got the issues the, out there for the imitation of. Full mom, the imitation voices. Yeah, money, Yeah, it worked. It worked better in scene, but still. So I would also add, um, in addition to voice, I, I think sound effects um, yeah. should also play a role. So we we had a campaign, and for whatever reason, I think I was playing you know, some kind of you know uh, melee fighter, and I was you know messing around, and I downloaded an app that had all sorts of kung fu noises. And yeah. had a great, a great time with, with little uh, kung fu kicks and and wah and you know it, uh, it I, I was amusing myself. I don't know about anybody oh. else, but oh, uh, we were having fun. But yeah, so that was uh, well, Mark's kids really liked it too. So uh, that was another. <laughs> um, but at any rate, so so I think um, <clears throat> you know sound effects can can also play uh, a useful role in emphasizing certain actions. Um, uh, you know and. Just you know, enhancing the gameplay and, and making it more fun and interesting. All right, so Chad, the microphone is over to you. Time to shine, buddy. All right, bloody hell, guys, and put another shrimp on the Barbie. <laughs> Let's offend a few more. Uh, uh... <laughs> That's my accent. Um, does your character have any reoccurring sayings or aphorisms? What can you plan ahead of time or steal from others? So this is a perfect question for Golden Child, without a doubt. Uh, this is going to be pretty much the biggest part of his personality. I really wanted him to have him have wise sayings for every occasion, parables describing whatever situations they need to ever overcome, uh, omens to find and decipher, and finally some final bit of wisdom at the end of the adventure to sum up what we learned, because knowledge is power. It's a bit overly ambitious, so I'm looking at TV shows, movies, and books to kind of supplement or give me ideas of what to use during the adventure. If nothing else, they have some quick generic sayings to have in my back pocket. Now, the key point in all of this for Golden Child is that he's not especially wise or intelligent, but he uses his full charisma and an overinflated view of himself that his knowledge will help enlighten the masses. This reminds me a lot of Michael Scott from The Office, uh, earnest but offensive. Um, some of the quotes from that show that could lend itself to my character, and, and this may be more about describing him than really something he would say, uh, quote, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be loved. But it's not like this compulsive need to be, like I need to be praised. Or sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where I'm going. I just hope I find it along the way. And even, and would I rather be feared or loved? Easy. Both. 
I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. I think these Michael Scott quotes reflect a lot of personality of what I wanted to instill in Golden Child, whether I actually used them or not. I also looked for some actual drops of wisdom from the ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu. Take that pronunciation with a grain of salt, or as Golden Child would say, with whole grain. Uh, these would give me a framework of how I'd want to broadcast my sayings through Golden Child, whether it's a direct quote or something that I could butcher. Uh, here's a few general quotes from good old Lao. The best fighter is never angry. Do you have patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? Silence is a source of great strength, which is probably one I'll have to use a lot. Or some popular adages like little strokes fell great oaks, or a friend to all is a friend to none. Uh, these great quotes also reminded me of a character from Mystery Men. Uh, his name was Sphinx, and he would often do a kind of a pair and contrast saying, such as things like, he who questions training only trains himself at asking questions. <laughs> those who can't control their anger lets their anger control them. I'm thinking I could take something somebody said during an adventure and then turn it into one of those. Or even better, make up one that makes no sense. For example, care about what other people think and you will always be their prisoner. But if you are a prisoner to their care, then you won't know what to think. And then just kind of let the thought trail off and hope no one notices. <laughs> then, of course, taking some popular sayings and having Golden Child turn them into something that makes sense for him, but kind of dilutes the message in the first place. Like the journey of a thousand miles begins with a good pair of boots. Um, the world that Golden Child sees is full of omens and signs that only he has the insight into seeing. And he wants to share it with everyone especially if it's already happened or readily apparent. Like if a knife shot shoots out of the darkness uh, at his friends, he might say, I think there's danger ahead. <laughs> or if there's an eclipse, he might say, it looks like dark times are upon us for, for at least a good five minutes. Uh, I also made a list of bad and good signs to be ready in case they occurred during the adventure. Not that Golden Child is superstitious, but maybe a little stitious. Also Michael Scott quote. Things like breaking a mirror, an upside down horseshoe, knocking salt over, tea leaves, crystals, uh, sayings from the oracle, oracles, that's what she said. Uh, and then finally, at the end of the adventure, I could come up with a moral or a story or some kind of parable. Like he could say, I saw a herd of ants taking down a large bug. Let's be like the ant and together we can kill bugs. So these are a few of the things I came up with while looking at actual quotes to both use and inspire my character. And with that, I'll leave you with one final quote from The Golden Child, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. There once was a boy who found a crying wolf because he was all alone. But when the boy tried to get the townspeople to help the crying wolf be happy, no one came. And that's why they're called lone wolves, packs of lone wolves. Nice. All right, next. <laughs> I, think, I think this one, this one is such a slam dunk, right? It's like one of those things where if you just put in like the, the, just the minimum amount of time to find some of this, some of this stuff or, you know, and you can steal it from anywhere as Chad has, I mean, you can see TV, you can steal it, you can get a, a book of Bartlett's quotations or like, you know, any, any, anyone who did aphorisms like uh, La Rochefoucauld or Montaigne, uh, Balthazar Gracian, I mean, like, or, you know, anyone who's like super quotable, you can steal their stuff uh, or like Chad says, you could just, make it up um, yeah. <laughs> and there are already classes that have this built in right there's the you know the paladin has the oath that they take uh, depending on what kind of paladin they are so automatically you have like this thing that you can work with you can kind of flavor it the way you want you know think about the the um the the 
that in Game of Thrones, the oath that the the Rangers all take, right? Or um, in the Stephen King gunslinger books, right? They they have that you know, I don't shoot with my hand, I you know, I shoot with my heart. Um, that kind of refrain and uh, all that stuff is is really really good. And just like I said, the minimal investment and you just keeps paying off over and over again as you go through the game. And uh, I, I just think it's it's really really super fun and an, an easy way to show you know a, a good. Uh, a good quality of your character, you know, sh show their their discipline or their faith or just their their uh, you know perception of of how the world works. Uh, it's it's role playing gold. It really is. Am I next? You're up. Uh, you're up <laughs> you're <or> next. <laughs> and I'm too marked. <laughs> oh, it, odd to me. Uh, okay. <laughs> Role playing goal. I was really excited about that one. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so, uh, oh, I'm going to be talking for a while on this one too. Okay, so this one is uh, how do you visualize your character's appearance? And this is such a great way to get into your characters to think about what they look like. And you can start with kind of basic things like their physique, uh, their hair, their eyes, uh, maybe what clothing they, you know, they wear. Um, you can, and then kind of start to get, you know, further involved. Do they have like tattoos, piercings, uh, adornments? Do they have accessories that they wear, you know, a hat, um, some sort of signature piece like a, a cane or a pipe um, uh, or a, you know, a staff. Uh, maybe it's like, you know, carved in the shape of a hand or something. There's, there's infinite kind of ways that you can customize you know, just your possessions and the things that are on you uh, and uh, and kind of develop uh, a sense of your character's appearance that way. Uh, you can also uh, look at the things that they do, uh, their spells and their abilities, and you can describe those, right? Uh, if, if your character's, uh, you know, the radiant energy that comes off of your character's smite, what does it look like? When your character casts a magic missile, is it like three screaming blue eagles that, that fly out and shriek as they hit the target? Um, and, uh, you know, just think about, you know, simple kind of ways to, to make him unique to your character. So it's not just, you know, oh, I smite them, you know, or oh, I cast magic missile. Uh, Another great way to do this is, is ritual casting. I love ritual casting and, and its possibilities. Ritual casting, I think, is very undersold in the, in the player's handbook because it's this really, really fun way to take something uh, that's both kind of advan have something that's advantageous to your character and has this, this really, really uh, fun introduction to role playing and, and, and you know, working out, like, what is, what is this ritual that your character is doing? Like, the, the ritual has to last a while, so, so they've got a lot going on. And uh, there's, there's so many different ways that you can kind of describe your character and connect with, you know, how their magic, uh, the source of their magic, and how they, they interact with it and what their relationship is in, in a ritual. Um, you know, is it, is it cooler to, uh, to say, oh, well, I cast Leaman's Tiny Hut and we go to sleep? Or to say... I place three green candles in a triangle. I light them and acrid smoke comes out. As the smoke emits from the candles, I place an incredibly smooth ceramic bowl in the middle of the candles. 
and slowly I turn my hands around the bowl, whispering and blowing short puffs of air. As the smoke curls around the bowl, it gradually spreads out and surrounds the party. Sweat starts to bead on my forehead as I focus and focus. And suddenly the smoke clears and it solidifies into a giant protective sphere. We prepare to rest. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I think that maybe sounds a little bit cooler than just saying I cast a spell. Um, so we can also find uh, a lot of cool ways to look at things that are out there um, and help us develop our character. One of the things that uh, we do, we, we play online using the Fantasy Grounds platform, and uh, we have little character tokens, uh, you know, on screen for those games. And so, you know, either Al or us, we end up, you know, searching the internet for like the perfect, using like a Google image search and trying to find like the perfect shot that represents our character. Um, so that's, that's one thing to, to look at. Um, you can look at miniatures too. Uh, uh, there's a lot of great miniatures. Uh, you, know, you can type in a, just a, a search with some stuff about your character and, and come up with some cool stuff on, you know, uh, Miniatures Market, WizKids, Reaper, looking at those places uh, and looking at the miniatures or even better, you can customize your own miniature, make this 3D model of your character and maybe, um, I'm sorry, Hero Forge. Maybe you don't want to shell out the you know twenty or thirty bucks for it, but you you can use it as this kind of source of inspiration. And I'm just gonna share my screen here. Uh, okay. All right. So using Hero Forge, uh, I created this 3D model of uh, my character Vic the Vulture, the Hobgoblin <laughs> Wizard. Um, and uh, if you watched last week's episode, you know that, that Vic has this kind of unlikely proficiency in the weapon, the maul, which he is holding in a very intimidating posture there. I also was able to make uh, Vic kind of super tall and skinny. Um, and, uh, and then I started to kind of take some inspiration from what Hero Forge had to offer. I love these uh, these hand wraps, right? And the foot wraps, I thought that would really kind of complement and this, you know, rope belt or whatever that really complement his kind of impo somewhat impoverished kind of scavenger nature. Like anything that he has is really kind of, all of his assets are, are, are magical, right? That's, that's, that's where he's putting all of his, his money. Um, and he's got, you know, the potion bottle and the book there. There's his little rat familiar uh, right down there at his feet. And he's definitely got this kind of, you know, intimidating facial expression, the kind of like this don't mess with me look that I think is going to be his default expression. Um, so uh, you can see that, you know, not only was it kind of fun to put this together, but it also gave me some additional inspiration about my character. And now, you know, when I'm kind of envisioning Vic in my mind, I have this model uh, to look at, um, you know, this kind of uh, guy in these, these rags and wielding this ridiculously big hammer uh, with a little little rat um, at his feet there. So um, that's a, another way that you can use the tools out there to find some inspiration. Uh, okay, so uh, that's it for me. Let's go back to Mike.
So uh, a rival can oftentimes uh, be role-playing gold um, in terms of uh, character interaction, um, driving the plot forward. Um, when you roll bad, a uh, source of immense frustration. Um, but again, a good rival um, uh, lights the fires of competition and keeps things lively. So the question at hand for me is, um, do I have an ideal um, for a rival for my uh, character? So another one of the characters that I made up is a character um, who has named himself Brother Shameless. Um, shameless because um, what he wants to do in his heart is just meditate uh, upon the aspects of life, uh, but has been uh, forced to accompany the golden child. Um, and so he, he feels that he has uh, sacrificed his, uh, his integrity um, to a company who he believes to be a, a colossal fool. So he has christened himself shameless. Um, so of course his rival has to be the golden child who he's nominally uh, attending. So I envision it as somewhat of a Maxwell Smart Agent 99 dynamic where um, he's, he's you know, just constantly looking down on the golden child um, while at the same time being compelled to uh, to help him out of the messes that he creates. Um, although I could also see it going in a different way, um, more of a Inspector Clouseau, Cato kind of uh, dynamic where um, he's constantly trying to, uh, to assault the golden child uh, under the premise of, of making sure that he's keeping up with his training um, and whatnot. Uh, so, uh, so I, again, I can see that dynamic, um, you know, just, and loads of opportunity to just have a great time. Um, and in fact, uh, probably something I'm going to do is of my own kind of count is I'm going to kind of have a frustration meter. And when the frustration meter hits the maximum, he's going to really try and kill the golden child. Um, uh, and, and we'll see if he succeeds or not. Um, but um, but I, I just think that something like that adds an element of unpredictability uh, and, again, just makes the character really fun uh, to play. So, um, so with that, over to Al. All right. So what is your character's personal background or history? Now, the character backstory is a bit of a sensitive point in the D&D community. Because if you spend any time on D&D uh, &D forums or uh, gamer D&D uh, &D subreddits or whatever, you're going to see a lot of backstories. And you're going to see some very elaborate backstories. Some young people just love backstory. And they will write pages upon pages of loving description of how what, everything their character has done up until this point. And I don't know if you've ever tried DMing with one of those backstories in mind, but uh, you are going to remember maybe three things out of it. And that's going to be the best you can do. You can maybe mine a character's backstory for a little bit more depth, but really when you're coming up with your character backstory, don't overplan. is my primary advice. Think yeah, about and it. And this is not to discourage you folks that, that have these these thoroughly developed. I mean, go ahead, follow your views. But uh, Al is very correct. It's, it's hard for dungeon masters to learn it all. 
at once. Um, <laughs> and heaven help you if we've got multiple of you in the same party, because then it's, we got to give equal service to everybody. So it becomes really too much. Yeah. So just be patient with us. If you need to remind us a few things about your character's background, don't hesitate to do that. Um, but also maybe, you know, try to keep things relatively brief. Yeah. I say between three and five main things that you can really emphasize and uh, that you can even bring up in conversation with other players and that sort of thing. The kind of stuff that's more of a living backstory that can be really helpful. And with that sort, and also think about the role that previous adventures are going to play in your backstory too. A lot of people think of their backstory as fixed that this is my character, all of this crap that happened to me before any of you met me and before any of the game started. And that's not your whole character. You're gonna be living, you're gonna be doing stuff. You're gonna be part of a, of a new life. And that new life has gotta be at least as important as your old life. And ideally for the fun of everybody involved, it should be more important than your previous life. Yes. So pay attention to what's going on in the present and pay attention to any kind of weird recurring things that might show up uh, and feel free if an NPC shows up or something like that, that survives their interactions with your party of murder hobos. In that case, talk to your DM and try to work out, well, I really like that NPC. Can maybe we do a scene again in the future? Maybe that person can come back. Again, that kind of talking with your DM and actually being actively involved in the DM's story and your story that you are helping to shape too, uh, that is just going to make things a lot better on all involved. Again, your character's not a tabula rasa. They don't come into this totally blank, but don't predetermine everything about them from that backstory. Yeah. And then one final note, um, and this causes a lot of friction, I think, with it, like in, in probably productive friction, I think. And this is the tension between uh, what fiction writers call a flat character and a rounded character. Uh, the rounded character is a character who learns something over the course of the story. They gain some kind of deeper knowledge and they evolve in some way. It might not be a good way, but they attain some kind of knowledge about the world that helps deepen their connection to it. As opposed to a flat character who was already awesome or already sucky at the beginning and continues to be exactly that way throughout the story. Now, um, I do think we all have to think of our characters as round. At some point, you do want to bear in mind that there's probably going to be some changes that happen. Now, the tricky part is if you have a character arc in mind. So, uh, Shameless is arc of rivalry with the Golden Child, and the Golden Child's arc of am I going to discover wisdom or am I going to or be a, or am I going to discover that I'm actually a terrible person and continue to do that these are great starting points but the problem is with a lot of character arts we either never get around to developing them or we develop them too quickly like you want a, like if you say my character is going to be on a redemption arc 
and suddenly in the first game you're like, oh, I now apologize for being a jerk. No, no, we gotta we gotta know that you're a jerk for at least a few sessions before that that arc actually makes sense. So be patient with some of your stuff, but not too patient because then it'll never happen. So it's always a balance of how long is the campaign going to be? How do you feel like you're going to be playing? And then after a little bit of time, then take the steps and get on it. Yeah. Because you don't want to be, you don't want to wait forever because your character might die. Again, we got to get, you do have to get there eventually. <laughs> I was, I was all focused on what I was going to say. And then you started bringing up character death again. And it's like this weird recurring theme. Actually, yeah, uh, it's almost yeah. like there's a premonition going on there or something. It's 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 funny that that fourth edition hasn't come up yet. <laughs> so we'll so here's what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna try to make a brief. Uh, so talk to your DM. Right, your DM can help you with all of this. Your DM can can help you make sure that the character arc is satisfying and hits kind of the right places in in game chronology that it's supposed to. If, if, you know, you're having trouble creating this, this roundness, right, if you need a bridge from your past to your present, you know, have your DM uh, have an NPC at the beginning of your character that, that knows you from the past and you can interact with in, in your present and be this great bridge. In fact, like a lot of the characters, the character back backgrounds, they already start with some sort of contact. Um, and uh, and so that can be, you know, this this character that Wizards has so generously provided you with can be, you know, a great help throughout the campaign to give the player this kind of constant connection to their past, but let them role play it in the present. Um, but yeah, the, the the key is just to communicate with your dungeon master, and they will help you fulfill this as best as they possibly can. Oh, and one final note, uh, when we're talking about character backgrounds, sometimes it is best to leave things a mystery. Uh, I give you the Kessel Run. Um, the Kessel Run took on a sense of wonder and it added a lot of implied depth to Han Solo. It's okay to not actually ever develop what happened you can leave things a mystery or you can always refer to back to a previous moment in, in my college group uh there are a group of mercenaries that got their their actual recognition from their larger mercenary company when they all survived their first mission the implication was in the previous game people kept dying so we and we never got around to actually talking about so what actually happened in those previous sessions we kind of just left them as this glorious mess that maybe at some point we could come back to but again it we didn't determine everything so yeah, sometimes yeah. it's good to leave those gaps or to just have a reference to something mysterious that either you or your dm can either develop or not uh as the case may be Later I think on. a great example of that would be like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember the scene where where Indiana Jones meets Marion in the bar, and all you know is that they've got a past together, and she says something to the effect of, "I was a child. I didn't know what I was doing," or, and he goes like, "You knew what you were doing." Period. Stop. End of story. They don't tell you how it went down. It it's left to the imagination, but but it. it it supplies a depth uh, to the character interaction um, that that pulls into the present 
and moves as a starting point um, from there forward. So less is more. I can see that being a golden child saying like, are you using your imagination or is your imagination using <laughs> you? You can also probably pull a lot of great sayings from like uh, Willy Wonka. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 Or the internet fortune cookie generator. Yeah. Yep. All right. And over to you, Mark. All right. Like this one. Where are we now? It's about animals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, so what about animal companions and, and hench people, right? Um, and I, I like this because it, uh, it's, it's really a good way. So there are going to be some, some reluctant role players out there that are, that have these, you know, relationships with their pets. Um, and the very, very kind of comfortable way of interacting with their animals. And they might actually like, as a, as a way to kind of get into role playing or whatever, like they may uh, have a familiar animal companion or so forth and, and, and have that kind of familiar relationship and, and way of interacting that helps them kind of bring out the character. I think this is like a great way, you know, if you D&D uh, &D playing pet lovers out there, you like need a, an intro you know, a way to kind of get into your character, like try having a pet. Um, uh, and you, like I said, there's the animal companion, there's, there's uh, the familiar, um, there's plenty of ways to get a familiar. Um, uh, and uh, there's even the, the various, you know, figurines of wondrous power that transform into animals. Um, and you can, you can take the, the Salvatore route. Um, so, you know, you can, you can use, you know, if you're DM, you know, you didn't start, you're an animal lover and want to have the animal kind of interactions, you know, your DM can provide you with an animal too, like a, even a mount or, you know, maybe later on in the game, one of these figurines. Um, and it gives you these, these nice, comfortable, familiar actions, familiar interactions that you can, you can use to build on. Um, I've, I've seen players do it with great success, you know, they get into their their pets and you see kind of more more of their character through their interaction uh, with this animal. Um, and like having a hench person or a sidekick, you know, has a lot of a lot of some of the same advantages. It can also be great for players who, you know, need someone to riff off of, someone uh, to be their straight person or, you know, that they can they can interact with. And maybe they're, you know, they're having trouble like connecting with another player in the game and, and finding, you know, role-playing foils. So, bam, give them a sidekick. Give them a hench person, and they can, they can, they can torture that, <laughs> that individual with their personality all they want. Um, and, uh, uh, no, you can, you can give all these, these opportunities for that, that player to, uh, to interact with their hench person, this kind of constant role-playing device that's always there. Um, and, you know, you can also, it, this works especially well for characters who are evil or playing like power hungry characters, right? They have this, this constant, uh, you know, uh, person that they can remind everyone how evil they are by ordering them around or being really, really mean to them. Um, and uh, it, it could kind of gives a nice uh, opportunity to constantly show if they're not getting those opportunities, you know, in the kind of in the in the D and D world already, it gives them ways to show other people just, you know, how awful they are. 
So um, my character, uh, Vic, has a pet. Um, uh, he has a, a rat familiar. Um, and he is going to, uh, I'm going to kind of use that to, um, to show how, you know, this kind of different side of, of his personality, right? To show him, show how he's, a little, you know, a little more uh, kind of multifaceted than he appears. And, and so, you know, he's going to be a total jerk to people, but like really, really, really kind to uh, his rat and, uh, and very protective and, and, you know, has this, you know, kind of relationship where the rat's been, the rat's also a survivor. The rat's been through it all with him and, uh, and they have this, this connection together. Um, but there's, there's plenty of other uh, interactions that, um, that you can develop with your, your companions and uh, turn something that's kind of, you know, a class feature or, or whatever into, into something that, that, that really, really helps you connect uh, with your character's personality and, uh, once again, their, their worldview and their values. All right, who's next? That would be me. So... Um, so kind of continuing some of the themes we discussed before, um, uh, considering the issue of, of how you are likely to interact with non-player characters of various types. Um, so this is pretty easy for, for Brother Shameless. Brother Shameless wants nothing to do with the world. So he's going to treat everyone with, he's going to first ignore. Uh, if he has to interact with someone, his default is going to be uh, dismissiveness or contempt. Um, unless it's one of those rare individuals um, of some kind of spiritual nature who he feels he deserves respect for, but he really has no desire to interact with the secular world whatsoever. He just feels like he's constantly bathing in a sea of filth, um, and his attitude is going to reflect that. Um, Careless Whisper, on the other hand, um, is uh, it's going to be very person-specific. Um, I envision him having the kind of playboy public persona uh, deadly assassin at, you know, uh, uh, by night. Um, and so the way that those two characters, you know, those, those two, you know, kind of, uh, you know, day and night interact um, are going to be very different. Um, you know, if he's doing the, the playboy type, it might be a lot of bluster with, with nothing really backing it, um, as opposed to, to the assassin type who, you know, will, will not suffer fools gladly uh, at all. Um, and has the muscle to back it up. Um, uh, again, you know, as I mentioned before, um, if it's not of a combative nature, but it's more just an interaction, um, it, you know, again, it's going to be very transactional uh, in nature, always looking to how to maximize his own profit, um, not necessarily at the expense of others, but, you know, uh, is not going to go out of his way um, to really do anything substantive unless he perceives there to be some kind of benefit in it uh, for himself. Um, so he's always looking for what's the angle for me, um, even if it, that proves to create, um, you know, awkwardness or, or um, you know, bad feelings or, you know, throws, throws a real monkey wrench into what the DM had intended for uh, a dynamic to play out. Um, but again, I think that that's going to be, you know, good role-playing gold um, uh, as long as he doesn't get killed doing it, um, which is, you know, I... I is a possibility as well if he overestimates his own capabilities. So, um, so again, I, I, I think it's, it's going to be very um, uh, time and place uh, specific, um, but, um, but can see a lot of different uh, potential 
uh, ways to interact with different characters um, under different circumstances. So, and back to you, Al. All right. So, uh, the question that I'm addressing here is what kind of campaign specific devices could shape role playing? Now, uh, as the DM, this, uh, this question is uh, natural for me to field. So uh, there are some elements of this campaign that are designed to give uh, ready-made hooks for the players to interact with. So first of all, all the players are in a gang. Uh, they are in a, a gang of uh, various non-human races that have banded together to protect themselves against the more aggressive human gangs in the area that are operating more with the, the uh, blessing of the authorities. Uh, so already uh, there's a structure of support. The players, even if they don't, the characters, even if they don't particularly like each other, do have a reason to stick together and to protect each other because again, self-preservation ultimately. The other gangs, are, are ready-made rivals and villains. Uh, also, the guards are going to provide uh, a regular level of danger, in the sense that they're they're they they present the uh, the problem of cops for any kind of criminal enterprise or uh, or oppressed group. In that, not only do you have to hide criminal activity from them, but they're likely to stick their noses in in any number of innocent situations and make things worse. So that is a dynamic that that we'll have to deal with. Then, on top of that, I am a uh, I've I've done a decent amount of courses in 18th century lit, uh, and uh, my girlfriend it was a specialist in 18th century uh, criminology, uh, criminal uh, lore. So I ended up uh, stealing an idea from the Beggar's Opera, and that is the idea of what they call the thief taker. And a thief taker is sort of a uh, a citizen with kind of a letter of mark level of operation from the government to find thieves and to turn them over to the authorities. And it, they work sort of in a weird criminal way themselves because they frequently take bribes. So these dirty guys are going to be involved in dealing with the gangs generally themselves, and they're going to serve the role of like is sort of a weird combination of snitch and parole officer in that they are a point of contact with the authorities, but they are uh, not exactly trustworthy themselves. And they are involved in criminal activity themselves as well. So they're, uh, the, uh, the uh, thief taker from the beggar's offer is Peachum, and he is a delightful character. He is an evil bastard all the way through, and it makes the uh, play a delight. So there'll definitely be a thief taker that the, the players are in contact with. Um, on top of that, this is a monotheistic world. So all of the players who are uh, oriented towards religion, none of them took clerics. So in this campaign world, the clerics are generally t more orthodox. Uh, characters. They tend to represent the established religious hierarchy, which we call the unity in this campaign. Uh, the fact that we've got a druid 
uh, and druids uh, in D&D are often figured as being servants of sort of an older religious system, the old gods. Again, if you're familiar with Game of Thrones, that dynamic's there as well with uh, folks from the north. Um, this idea of uh, an older deity that might be beyond the current system in some way ready makes conflict. Uh, you have a heretic already in the middle of the game. Uh, when we have an angel who is, work, or who is moving among humans, uh, this also establishes quite a bit of, of ready-made conflict because uh, many fiction writers have speculated what happens when actual divine creatures interact with us, and usually we're pretty bad to them. So this will be a nice point of conflict. Again, we are scorning the Real, the possible side that a possible messenger from from a, the divine itself and we're not listening again this is a standard policy i get it'll it'll happen here too so all of these dynamics are designed to try and build in a certain amount of conflict already and uh some of the players based on their classes and backgrounds are already interacting with some of these components and then the campaign itself will introduce a few more so uh, always be familiar with what campaign your DM's coming up with. Talk to your DM about how, what your role is going to be in this bigger game. And uh, you'll find that uh, you can get quite a bit of interesting dialogue going. And again, this is a story you're, you're ultimately working on together. The DM can do all kinds of development. The DM can toil and slave away at creating an incredibly elaborate story. But without you, it is nothing. And ultimately, the players are the ones who are going to shape how that story ultimately plays out. So don't underestimate your power in this situation. Again, you have the ability to add to this story. And if you're working together, you're going to find that this is going to turn out a lot better. All right, and Mark, over to you. Okay, so uh, how can I... I use downtime to develop my character. Uh, downtime uh, is a, a actual, a formal mechanic introduced in, in Xanathar, although it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, use, you know, the set rules in the game. I mean, downtime can be whatever you and your DM decide it's going to be. But they, they give you suggestions on things that you can do uh, when your character is not out adventuring. And uh, these are uh, fantastic opportunities. Uh, it's especially good because it gives uh, players uh, a way to show facets of the character that maybe they haven't uh, had opportunities to do yet in the game, right? If if um, your DM hasn't provided you yet with a scenario where you you know can demonstrate this thing about your character, well, you can use downtime to to show that that part about them. You know, you can if they're um, you know, have an interest in a particular area that they haven't been able to explore, you know, they can use downtime to do it. Um, and uh, they can also, you know, do numerous other uh, developmental things, interact with their world, um, catch up with NPCs. Uh, you can use it for uh, kind of more um, uh, quantitatively advantageous purposes. Uh, maybe you can use it to, to you know, to, to find magic items, uh, or, you know, uh, develop uh, proficiency in a skill. Uh, but, you know, even those things uh, that have those, you know, very, very tangible in-game benefits can be used uh, as role-playing uh, um, 
opportunities. Uh, now, um, my two characters, uh, Q and Vic, would probably approach downtime very differently. Uh, I can see uh, Q using it as uh, an opportunity. Q is my half elven bard. I can see him using it as an opportunity to create art, right? So he's out uh, maybe uh, doing some graffiti. Uh, he could be uh, engaged in, you know, some diplomatic activities, right? He's, he's a peacemaker. So he could be using these uh, times when he's not trying to stab someone to uh, actually go out and, you know, build some bridges. Um, he, he could also, uh, you know, uh, you know, work on some of his uh, dance moves. You know, I see him as kind of having these various b-boy dance moves, so he could be you know, practicing his moves uh, or maybe seeking out, you know, uh, other, other dancers to kind of form a, you know, a dance squad. Uh, um, but, you know, the various possibilities. Vic, I kind of see more, more tunnel vision, right? I can see, you know, Vic is not going to have this, this, this rich artistic um, social life. He's going to be doing one thing and one thing alone, and that's looking for more magic. So, you know, he's going to be out there looking for magic items or uh, working on ways to be, you know, maybe he's going to work on uh, getting the, using the, you know, alchemist tools, you know, learning those or the herbalism kit, you know, so he can learn uh, more about, you know, various uh, production techniques for, you know, for things, uh, magical items. Um, so, yeah, I can see him kind of being very, very focused in, in that direction. Uh, but once again, you know, uh, this is a great way for you uh, and the DM to, to show uh, parts of your character that just really haven't gotten out in the campaign yet. It's uh, definitely don't squander that opportunity. Is that, that's, is that our last question? Are we doing the... The, uh, the all question. Yeah. yeah, why don't you take that one, Chad? Uh, sure, let me... Uh start and share the screen so yes share you're not sharing all right so nice i kind of come from a graphic design background so you know visuals are very for very big for me so a lot of it was just taking a look at kind of different people's take on the goblin and and mine was kind of a cross between you see there's like baby yoda and Smeagol, though the nice half of Smeagol, not the twisted evil version that tries to do him bad. Um, and so one of the other things I saw while I was looking at this was in the Dungeons and the uh, Player's Handbook was a section called Trinkets. And I looked at some of the trinkets and I envisioned him, he had like one of the trinkets was a broken whistle. So I can see him carrying it around and blowing on that fruitlessly. Or they had a, a pipe that blows bubbles. And I can see him being sophisticated and sitting back and blowing bubbles. Um, but a lot of the storyboard is kind of a mood board. And uh, so it was kind of looking at the small but kind of happy, friendly person you don't really want to be mean to. And then for the Asmar, for uh, the Golden Child, with the Charisma of 17, I wanted somebody very saintly. Uh, obviously, I don't think the Asmar has full-blown wings until like third level when he can manifest it. But just that he's really in touch with the divine uh but he's just really clueless about everything so and that's my guys am i the only one who couldn't see the other image board i couldn't see it either yeah uh, i i think you might want to go back and show the uh, golden child image board there all right go. there we go all right um 
yeah, as you can see, there's a little picture that I drew over here where, you know, he's bending down and you've got the holy wings behind him. Um, even, uh, let's see if I do, I don't like this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like this very much. And it's gone. All right. But uh, I also, you know, did some graphics and some drawings of, of different things. And one of the things I had done was uh, draw his little staff for Eek, it's a goblin, and it's got like this half-eaten rat that's part of his totem for a druid. No! But, you know, he's friends with rats, but, you know, it's also a circle of life. Sometimes you get hungry. So, uh, and that's kind of a lot of the inspiration, visualization that I get for my character. So, next. Yeah, so I, I I think I talked about it a little bit in the last episode. For, for Q, I, I definitely took inspiration uh, from the book uh, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, which talked about these kind of uh, three uh, various aspects of, of that combined to create hip-hop culture in, in New York in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. And, um, and so I, you know, thought about this character who... who like a b-boy and, and did graffiti and did like all of these things um it just kind of seemed to mesh naturally with some of al's uh campaign inspirations so yeah so that that and the the campaign definitely inspired that character um and i think that for for vic i really was looking at uh um the material in, in bolo's guide to monsters you know when i came up with the idea to to create a hobgoblin i kind of looked at that you know, supplemental material about they do a nice piece on the all the goblinoids in there, and uh, and just kind of imagining the kind of culture that he would come out of and that he would reject, and kind of and realizing what the consequences of that would be, you know, and and kind of molding the character around that. I also definitely wanted to play two characters that really contrasted each other, right? And so I, I, I feel like, you know, personality-wise, one character who's really trying to build bridges and the other one who's just trying to get everyone to leave him alone, yeah. you know? So, uh, yeah, those are my inspirations. So for me, let me share the screen. Um, Careless Whisper, obviously, I'm, I'm definitely thinking, you know, a, an 80s-era uh, George Michael, um, you know, feathered, feathered blonde hair, you know, uh, uh, you know earring, um, you know, breezy kind of clothes, just, you know, real, real pretty boy, uh, you know, type, type look to him, um, which again, contrasts the public versus the private. Um, but, um, but that was my, kind of my guiding inspiration um, there for Careless Whisper. Um, for Brother Shameless, it's actually been a little bit more evolutionary in terms of as I learn more about what Chad's character uh, is going to be like, that's helped me to develop uh, more of the ideas of what I want Brother Shameless uh, to be. It originally just started off as a character sketch of, well, he just doesn't like this, this other guy to really just, you know, fleshing it out. You know, if he's going to be the, 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 the breezy, irresponsible, negligent one, um, then, then my character needs to be the very severe, you know, always follow the rules. Um, You're going to you know, be an anti-Christ, aren't you? <laughs> so I've got a ruler and I'm not afraid to use it. Um, uh, so, 
comedic Yeah, gold. that definitely is a different direction than kind of your original. It's, it is, it is. But I'm, like I'm how, liking how that's evolved. It. I'm, 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 I'm really kind of excited about playing this because I think it's going to be really fun. Um, like I said, especially the at every opportunity to inflict corporal punishment on the golden child. Um, what could go wrong? <laughs> In the words of Teenage Me, but we're on the same team. We <laughs> <laughs> oh. are still right, on the so. same team. The goal is just different. <laughs> All right, so what about you, Al? All right, so uh, I really like using music. Uh, as inspiration for characters and uh, because I have no musical talent of my own I have to draw on the, that of others uh, I'm a big fan of using Spotify for creating playlists and I'll do this as a DM uh, I got to the point where with uh, some games I would actually do a full playlist for the session beforehand as sort of a here listen to this to kind of get in the mood for it um, I really like the idea of music going along with the game, but I have never actually been able to work that balance outright because usually it's either too loud or too distracting. Uh, it's really hard to use music with a lot of the online platforms. Uh, so it hasn't really worked out as something to go along with the game. Someday I will master how to do this. Yeah, but, I think I think the key is like having a, a player do it like get because like it's you're like you're already doing so much yeah, yeah. as a dm to like you should have like a you know uh, an official game dj right yeah Someone, like they're kind of like to set the mood yeah and i'm a big fan of using uh of not using orchestral stuff because again i love the conan soundtrack and as we've already revealed we we all are big fans of conan but You've heard this eight million times during game sessions. You can't listen to that Henry V soundtrack the entire time you're playing. You've got to find some other stuff to listen to, for crying out loud. So I like a mixture of, of music types, just whatever goes along with, uh, with the action. Uh, I'm a really big fan of letting Western imagery leak into D&D a lot. I like spaghetti Western soundtrack stuff and things like that to go along with fights. If there's a really big dramatic fight coming up, I'll, I'll use something like that. Uh, for the playlist that I came up with for the campaign itself, my, the combination is uh, I'm going for a combination of, at this point, it's mostly been... Uh, a little bit of gangster rap combined with a little bit of uh, Australian and British hooligan music. And the idea here is to try to get both the, like, the soccer riot kind of feel, and then also the idea of living in sort of a dystopian like societies out to get you kind of situation right, right. that it's not just the cops it's not just your rivals right. it's kind of everything the whole yeah, the deck is stacked against you is bad so uh so i've been trying to play that up and it's i still haven't come up with playlists for my actual characters but i uh, for some of my parties I've come up with uh, like themed playlists, like a song for each character, just to kind of get, again, people into the mood and to start thinking about how the, the session's going to go. So uh, again, I highly recommend it. I think it works great. 
And uh, if you're a more audio, aud uh, more audio influenced person, uh, this is a way that you kind of get yourself psyched up for playing and, and to get deeper into that character and think about kind of the attitude you want to embody. And music frequently does this better than writing. Uh, again, sometimes musicians tap into something they don't even know they're tapping into ultimately. Uh, music can bring a lot of depth and can convey stuff you didn't even necessarily intend to convey ultimately. It's uh, a, a very deep creative process for both listener and performer. So. so is that... I think that's everything we wanted to talk about there. Uh, as far as uh, inspiration for characters, again, there's a lot of ways to get it, and that's one of the things we definitely wanted to talk about since all of our creative processes are pretty different. Yeah, hopefully we gave you kind of like a, a multitude of options there, places to, to look. You know, obviously the, the, the using the internet has been very helpful to all of us. So, you know, yes. get out there, look for YouTube videos, uh, search for songs on whatever kind of streaming, you know, service you have or whatever. Use use the tools available to you to uh, ex explore your character and, and, and really seek out uh, some sources that can that have value for you in this development. Um, and, uh, you know, once again, hopefully we've showed you also that there's there's lots of different ways, lots of entry points for you to start your path up Character Mountain and uh and really kind of uh get to a place where you feel like your character is realized and and uh you know who they are and what they do and, and what they stand for um and hopefully everyone else in your group at this point you know will too um uh it's it's really really fun to uh to play when everyone gets to that point right where you can kind of almost already predict uh what careless whisper is going to do or how um you know how the golden child is going to react in a particular situation um those moments are are fantastic and and really bring you together you know as a gaming group and just make the the session that much more magical um and we you know that's what we want for all of you um, we definitely have it at our games um and uh and we hope that that all of this will help you get to that point. Um, now, do we want to do want to preview what's coming up next? Preview of coming attractions next week on <laughs> Dungeons and Decisions. So, actually, not next week. It usually takes us longer than a week to get these together. Uh, we will end up playing through <laughs> a few scenarios as our characters, and you, the viewers at home or listeners at home, can watch the magic unfold. All right, so until then, folks, uh, take care of yourselves, and we will see you next time on Dungeons and Decisions. Bye. Bye. Hey, mates. <laughs>